I'm going to unmute. I'm going to unmute. And then I'm going to. I'm going to make Sierra the host. Yay. Okay, I can hear y'all. I can hear y'all and you're live. And then I'm good. I heard recording stopped. Are we sure that the uh, we got recording going on here? Yeah, we're sure because it'll be live on, on YouTube. So, Dad, play us soon, will you? Yeah, you know I'd be happy to do that. You know I'd be happy to do that. medley. My name is Sierra Flanagan. I'm joined as always by my dad, Ted Flanagan, the host of the Ecologic podcast, which consists of conversations that he has with stimulating leaders, news, live events happening now and kind of breakdown of them. And then the crash course where we are here in the next 30 minutes with the mission to demystify complex technologies such as offshore wind, which we're going to be talking about today. Um, today is also our first time on YouTube, so we're hoping that this can be the best platform for engaging with you all. Um, so really grateful to be here. And Dad, let's just dive right in because we don't have a ton of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, know, we know that wind's been around for a while. Can you tell us a little bit of history? Yeah, yeah, it, it's great to be on another one of these crash courses, and we got to we get a got to give thanks to Elise who is uh, handling all of our technical stuff here, and we're we're very pleased about that. But yeah, wind has been around for a long time. In fact, I was looking up; it looked like in five thousand BC before Christ, you know, there was wind along the Nile River, and people were sailing on the Mediterranean, of course, sailboats. But but wind was used to. Uh, to grind grain uh, and to pump water all the way back, uh, all the way back. It was it goes back 200 BC in China for for water pumping. Persia and the Middle East, uh, and then they, they, you know they had these woven reeds that they had for the wind turbine blades. That that uh, today, are, of course, these high, highly composite materials. But uh, wind came to Europe. The Dutch, of course, are known for wind, and they used wind to drain swamps and marshes along the Rhine River Delta there. Yeah. Wind came to the American colonies, uh, was used for grinding grain, it was used for cutting lumber, uh, milling lumber, was used, of course, in the American West for water water pumpers. So uh, we have a, a rich history of wind is the, is the oldest the oldest energy resource uh, that we've been sort of using deliberately. And I just wanted to give four quick facts uh, that I thought were kind of interesting. And one is that wind turbines today, we're going to talk a lot about modern turbines, they capture 35 to 45% of the energy coming into that wind turbine, into that, into that aperture. 
so that, that's kind of an amazing thing. So if they captured 100% of the energy going into that aperture, the wind, the wind would just simply stop. So all that said is that they're, they've become uh, very, very efficient. Now, this is not one of the biggest uh, M, uh, wind turbines by, by a long shot. Uh, they've gotten much bigger than this, but it starts to give you a sense of the scale. So with these large wind turbines, every rotation of the blade generates enough electricity to power a house, a typical European house, for a couple of days. Hmm. Now, another interesting fact is that we deal with a cube law, and that is is that the power of the as the power of the wind increases, you get the cube uh, of the in, uh, of the incoming wind um, energy. So, what does this really really mean? Is is that when you double the wind speed, you get eight times the power. So, no one, no wonder we're going to be talking about offshore wind, which is uh, out in the ocean where it's un, unimpeded. Uh, and you get you got lots of wind. Uh, and then the final little tidbit before we move on is that if you looked at just the U.S. wind potential, and this is a loose number, but we've got about twice as much wind potential as we need to power the whole country with all, all the electricity that we have. Yeah, and so we know that wind energy comprises about 6% of the global energy mix, but what's the big deal here in the U.S.? Well, today it, it, it's a huge it's a huge deal. Now that we're gonna we're gonna bounce around a little bit, but this chart shows that if you look at the very bottom of this graph, you'll see the United States. And it, what this shows is is that we are way behind in terms of installed offshore wind capacity. We're doing pretty well with wind in the interior of the country, and I'll I'll talk about that. But in terms of offshore, we are way 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 behind. And this this is a little outdated. This is a 2018 graphic and China now I think has surpassed the United Kingdom in terms of of installed capacity. The the flip side of all that means is that we're behind, but the flip side is that we have a lot a lot of potential and that's what we're going to be talking about. Now if we just think about the United States, if we think about onshore wind and offshore wind, uh in 1990, uh wind was providing 1% of US uh, generation. By 2021, just last year, wind was providing 9.2% of all generation. In other words, almost 10%, maybe it is 10% at this point. About 400 billion kilowatt hours or 0.4 terawatt hours. Um, so how does that stack up with other resources? I just said 9% for wind or 9 or 10% for wind. We've still got natural gas up at 38%, coal at 22%, nuclear at 19%, renewables as a whole are at 20% and, and growing uh, very fast. Uh, in California, uh, we've got about 6% of the state's generation coming from wind. And we have a long history of wind here in California with the passes at Altamont, at Tehachapi, and San Gregorio. Uh, just a couple other tidbits. Uh, wind in the United States, the number one state by far is Texas, 30 gigawatts. I think no, we're of, talking onshore. Onshore, I think 30 gigawatts is uh, a gigawatt is like a nuclear plant. Uh, of course, the, the wind doesn't blow all the time. Texas, Iowa, Oklahoma, California is is um, is well is well down the down the list. So lots of opportunities uh, for, for wind, both onshore and offshore. We're going to be mostly fo focusing on offshore today. Yeah. And let's talk about the size because it's it's pretty significant and about even just transporting these massive blades, yeah. um, which I know can be as long as a football field. I think a football field plus the end zones. Uh, they're, they're, just, they're just incredible and they're getting larger and nobody really knows. I mean, this, this chart here shows, or this graphic, this is from NREL, 
and thanks to Walt Musial and the folks there at the Wind at the Wind uh, Center at NREL, the National Renewable Energy Lab, for for a number of the graphics here. But this shows that. You know, in a matter of uh, 20 years, we've had uh, we've gone from 70, typically 75 kW machines up to, well, this is showing 15 megawatt machines in, in the year 2030. Well, guess what? Vestas just announced their 15 megawatt machine last year. So, you know, that is being accelerated by about eight years and they're and they're getting larger. So there's a, there's been a big focus on this. There's very lightweight. There's a lot of material science in this, uh, a lot of design in it. But yes, the it's just absolutely crazy how long these are. The towers are one and a half times as tall as the Washington Monument. Uh, you know, it's just unbelievable that the hub height, which is where the where the rotor is, where it spins around, you know, 270 feet. Again, that's uh, it's a good a good football field up there. So uh, just absolutely fantastic. The size of all of these wind turbines and of course, they're they're going larger because they're, it's very cost effective to do so. Um, you know, you're reducing your infrastructure costs by by having fewer wind turbines out the, out there. So they're just getting larger and larger and larger. And how far offshore are we going with these wind turbines? I've heard of floating turbines. Um, you know, how? Yeah. What What's the ideal kind of environment or conditions for one of these turbines? I know that they vary drastically. Well, we're going to get to the floating concept, but you know, typically you don't want to go very far offshore. I mean, you want to be 15 miles offshore, so so you're out of the line of sight on a typical day, and so that's quite common to be 15 or 20 miles offshore. Of course, the farther you go, the more cable you have to run out there, but you, have, you want to get out of out of sight. Now, in New England, uh, we have the continental shelf that extends, you know, dozens of miles out, maybe even a couple hundred miles out into the ocean at reasonable depths and reasonable is is less than 200 feet of water right so less than 60 meters at less than 60 meters you can you can actually drive a, a column right down into the ocean seafloor or plant some sea legs on the ocean seafloor but if you want to go deeper than that then you have to we're going to get into these this whole notion of floaters and some of these floaters are going you know 40 40 miles uh, offshore so you don't want to go any further than you have to but of course there's been lots of issues with um, with visuals and being right. concerned about the aesthetic impacts of wind turbines. Well, maybe you could just name some of the variables. I know we're going to get into what's most exciting about it, but are some of the barriers rather like what are the big hurdles in terms of um, sizing up these turbines and production of them? Well, I think the, uh, you know, the biggest barrier has been, um, you know, the aesthetic element, you know, it was vineyard wind that has been is, is very far along in development. By the way, we only have two offshore wind farms in the United States. One is uh, in Rhode Island, the Block Island we'll talk about. Uh, and then the other one is in, in, in Virginia, I believe. We only have 52 megawatts of offshore wind. That, that contrasts to about 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind in the United Kingdom. Wow. So, so that's, been a, that's been a real issue, uh, is the aesthetics. And that's why I think we're going further offshore uh with with these uh, with these turbines so that people so that people can't see them um 
you know, I mentioned the continental shelf. So there's lots of, there's lots of action on, in New England right now. Uh, Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, I mentioned New York is building a whole seaport uh, in, the, in, the, in South Brooklyn uh, Navy Yard or the South Brooklyn Terminal there to be able to take these massive uh, wind turbine blades and these nasals, these large hubs for these turbines and put them on these special ships and taking them out to sea. And all the way down to Virginia, a project is, is being developed in Virginia that's uh, uh, one of the largest projects. Um, I think it's uh, over over uh, a thousand megawatts uh, down down in Virginia. Or to, actually, it's even larger than that. Twenty six hundred megawatts. A wind project being developed by Dominion Energy. So, uh, yes, there have been barriers, uh, but now there are offshore leases that are coming through the federal government, uh, both on the east coast and the west coast. The prices keep coming down. The capabilities keep going up. The infrastructure is is happening. So, I think we're going to see a lot of this developed in the United States. Super exciting. Super, super exciting. Um, and so, yeah, what are the benefits to wind turbines being offshore versus onshore? I know that the the cables you mentioned and not having the infrastructure out there is one barrier. Um, you know, it's, I it's, imagine it's, there's much more wind. There's, there's more wind. There's just more wind offshore. And then as you get up high, as these turbines get up high, like we're talking sort of Eiffel Tower height, uh, you're getting up into even more wind, uh, which it, it turns to tends to blow. So, you know, it's kind of interesting when you think about onshore wind here in California, in particular. When the the, the way it works is in the, in the morning, uh, the desert heats up in California, and so this cool coastal air moves moves in from the ocean, the Pacific Ocean, and through the passes, San Gregorio and all, and it goes out to the desert, and the, the heat in the, in the desert is rising. So you have this very predictable flow in the morning. And then in the afternoon, you have just the inverse of that. And so in, in inter, um, the wind in the middle of the country uh, tends to blow at night is when it's predominantly blowing. But uh, all the experts say that the offshore wind is just blowing you know, much more than anywhere else. And in fact, some of the wind farms that are up in um, around Scotland you know, have capacity factors, you know, 57, 60, 65%. That means that they're getting 100% of their out rated output, you know, that percentage of the time. So you can just see how massive here are these images of the, the nasal here and then the blades. You know, think about how complicated that would seem to be to build and to move. But we're seeing just such an incredibly rapid uptick in this. And the manufacturers, Investus and Siemens and others, or GE, are, are going wild building all of this stuff and producing all sorts of well-paying jobs. And then, you know, uh, we're going to get into the infrastructure a little later. But think about how difficult it would be to set these blades on top of a floating wind turbine out in the middle of the ocean uh, <laughs> with, without any stable, with stabilizers on your ship. It's, it's, it's really, a, it's quite impressive. Yeah. Um, but why, why I'm so excited about it is, is that as, you know, many of my colleagues are worried, you know, that as we decarbonize the power system, uh, how are we going to do that? How do we get off of gas? How do we get off of coal? Uh, how, do we, how do we do that while we're loading up the power system with cars and trucks, electric cars and trucks and buses. And while we're also decarbonizing all of our buildings, what I'm calling e-buildings now. And so there's this huge need for a new resource. And this is the resource, I think, this is the renewable resource that we're looking for because it's, 
It's uh, very, very scalable. We have a huge potential right now. And it's cost its the most competitive renewable resource out there. I mean, these, this wind is coming off of these wind farms at five cents a kilowatt hour. Wow. You know, we're used to buying that for, from coal, but you know, and so that, and these costs are going down instead of going up and the wind is not costing any more to, any more to use. So, so there's a, why am I excited? Yes, because I see this resource as being key to our transition to electric mobility and electric buildings. Awesome. Yeah. So maybe we could talk about some of that complex infrastructure a little bit. And um, I know this slide's about spacing. Well, this is a kind of a fun slide because you kind of wonder how do they figure out how far apart to put these turbines? Because as I just said, imagine the wind is blowing and, and hitting one of these turbines and it's, you know, it's losing, well, it's, you're getting 40% efficiency out of the turbines. That means that you're, it's losing 40% of its wind energy. Uh, and so what about the next row of turbines? How do you do that? Hmm. And they do this thing that's called eight rotor or eight D, eight D spacing. And they're just, they've just said, okay, if the rotor is this amount, one D, then we're not going to put that next turbine another eight for eight D, another eight diameters of that rotor spinning around. So you can see why offshore wind is really appealing because there's lots and lots of space. Uh, if you wanted to power Long Island with wind turbines, just wind turbines, the three million people on Long Island, you would need to take half of the land area of Long Island to do that, you know, to use this, this, this spacing uh, mechanism. And, and so you can just see you need a huge amount of space. So taking this offshore allows for the space required for these really, really large wind farms. Right. Wow. And so another, this is a little blurry, but another key kind of indicator for where you put wind farms and offshore wind farms is looking at these wind maps, right? And understanding wind speeds, like you said, and kind of yeah. configuring systems around that. Yeah, and, and what you realize is, is that our coastal areas, which is where the most of our population is, it has, is very rich in offshore wind resources. So mm -hmm. that really gives, it gives us great gives us great hope. And, and you see this all throughout Europe. You're seeing just all these wind farms being developed that are really, you know, pretty close to population centers. Uh, and, and yet they're, you know, totally decarbonized. This is uh, a, even, you know, a really good example or good illustration by that NREL put together. And again, you can see New England, you can see the, how dark, that dark blue, those are the strongest wind regimes. You see that same in California. Now we have no continental shelf in California, so this is probably a good a good lead into our discussion about floating turbines. Because um, I mentioned that if you've got less than two hundred feet of water, you can actually anchor your not anchor. You can actually fix your 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 um, your turbine to the to the sea floor. But if it's if it's more than two hundred feet of water, now here come the floaters. A lot of people said, "Oh, this is impossible." Um, but it turns out that, uh, let's see, the first um, commercial offshore floating wind farm was built in Scotland, uh, 30 megawatts, uh, six uh, megawatt turbines, Siemens turbines. They're in 427 feet of water. So remember I said 200 feet was the cutoff, right? right. That wind farm has a 57% capacity factor. So it was worth it for them to collect that wind energy to go way offshore into deep, deep water. Another project was built, uh, the Atlantic project in Portugal in 2019. Uh, we just leased an area off of uh, San Luis Obispo, in, uh, off here in California, for for offshore uh, for an offshore wind farm. So it, it turns out that these floaters uh, are 
are, are, are a reality. Uh, you don't, you don't, you can put a, a wind turbine on a barge, uh, or you can have it on a mono, like a buoy that just sort of is in the water and then it's tethered, it's tethered to the bottom, uh, using cables. Um, and so that, that just opens up the entire West coast, uh, to, to wind development, which is, which is pretty exciting. Super cool. So maybe we could talk a little bit about the cost and, um, how, how it becomes economically viable. You said we just leased land off of the coast of San Luis Obispo. Is that the utility or who is it that is actually kind of leading the charge on these projects? Uh, the federal government. Um, I can't remember what they call it. The offshore energy, offshore wind energy management office or something to that effect is, is in charge of leasing areas offshore, both on the East coast and the West coast. So there's a, there are there's very sophisticated companies that are in this in this business. Uh, they're Danish companies, they're Dutch companies, they're German companies, they're U.S. companies, and they're they're clamoring to bring this technology um, to the United States and to uh, to break through here because we have we have so much potential. I think New York State is looking at nine gigawatts uh, of potential and intending to have nine gigawatts. Uh, through a number of projects uh, ready by, I want to say, tw by 2035. Wow. I figure that'll bring 10,000 jobs to New York State. But, but nine gigawatts. I mean, remember I mentioned that we have 52 megawatts of offshore wind in the country right now. Okay. So nine gigawatts is comparable to what the United Kingdom has in place now. So these you are, said that's a proposal or that's actually a project? That's these are all projects. It's being supported by the state of New York. Uh, NYSERDA, New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. They're putting 500 million, the state of New York is putting $500 million into supporting offshore wind development, you know, developing port capabilities and, you know, working the process with private developers and the federal government to just sort of break through and make this form of wind, make this form of energy happen. Could you break that down a little bit more? You said nine gigawatts what, for the for us lay people. Like how many turbines are we talking, or how much energy is that actually gonna, or how many homes will that actually power? Boy, those are all those are all those are all good questions. Um, you know, when I I use a gigawatt in my mind, in my simple mind, a gigawatt is a nuclear reactor, right? Okay. So, and a nuclear reactor, of course, would be operating twenty four seven, but. Uh, so when I say nine gigawatts, I, that, that's a lot. That's like nine nuclear plants worth of, of wind capacity. Um, here in California. Without uh, all the dangers. <laughs> well, without all the dangers. I think the Biden administration is calling for 30 gigawatts of, of, of renewables, uh, excuse me, of, of offshore wind. In Scotland, a new, uh, a new wind farm just went in, in, in place. Uh, I think it's the largest uh, wind farm in the world it, uh, at this time, although in the next year it'll be some, somewhere else. But it, it went into place and it is going to power, it's enough power to power every single home in Scotland. Right? So, so one, one, one wind farm can do that. So you can kind of... It's a floating system. No, well, this is, I don't think that one is a floating, I don't think that particular uh, installation is a floater, but... Uh, but it's offshore, I mean. It is offshore. It is offshore. And that's where, yeah, tremendous. And, and, and many, many folks on the East Coast will remember the whole debacle around Cape Wind. But do you want to tell us a little bit about some of these success stories? I know we have Block Island and there's also another one in the Atlantic over here we have. 
Well, those are those are really the that's all we got right now in America. And I, yeah, I it's just you know, these two, eh? I I think uh, the the good news is that um, you know the really good news is that we're gonna have we're gonna have a lot more uh, very soon, and that that makes a lot of sense. The, the technology is is proven. Um, the infrastructure, which we want to talk a little bit about, yeah. is um, has really been developed in Europe, of course, which is where there is the most offshore wind development. China has you know, the largest of wind turbines and China has tremendous infrastructure. But you know, one, one uh, as I was doing some research for this project or for this um, podcast, one uh, rule of thumb I came upon was that if you look at the cost of a wind farm, an offshore wind farm, uh, about 75% of the cost, or oh, I put it this way, only 25% of the cost is in the wind turbines themselves, right? So you, we always think, oh, that's the cost, you know, the turbines, you know, the towers, the blades, all that good stuff. But, but no, um, you know, you've got the manufacturing of the blades, the rotors, the generators. You've got the shipping requirements, which are big. We've talked about ports and sort of staging areas that are being developed and, uh, you know, around Long Island Sound, actually, and in New York and now in Virginia. Uh, so you've got to have you've got the special ships to transport. Uh, we saw trucks in in the slideshow. We the special ships to transport these blades and to install them. Special vessels they call them jack-up vessels that actually go out and, and put their 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 legs into the sea floor and they jack themselves up and then they're able to to you know mount all this equipment. Um, it, it's just phenomenal. You have special ships to lay the, the cables or substations. Uh, some of these wind farms are so large that they have to have substations that are at sea. In Japan, there's floating substations. Then you got the receiving station for the wind farms. I think the, I think in the England, uh, National Grid is investing something like eight billion dollars in receiving stations for wind farms uh, all around all around the country. You've got all the maintenance facilities. So it's um you, you need housing for the crews. You need ships for the crews to get major out there. Operation. It's a major operation, just as is running any power plant. Uh, and the good news is that it's a simple technology. It's been around since five thousand BC. It's the most cost competitive of all the renewables. It's it's cost competitive with all of the fossil fuels right now. So it's just wide open for us and um, giving me great optimism. Mm. Um, I did want to mention um, hydrogen, the, the link with hydrogen, because uh, as many of our listeners know, I'm very bullish on hydrogen, especially green hydrogen that we can use um, in, in for mobility and we can use for fuel cells and power generation. But so there's so much wind power and it is so inexpensive that now the big players are, are figuring out how to put hydrogen electrolyzers out in the ocean near wow. near these near these wind farms. Siemens has $146 million trying to come up with a, a com combined wind turbine hydrogen electrolyzer so mm. that you can that you can either sell electricity if the prices are, are, are most suitable or you can uh, turn that electricity, that excess electricity into hydrogen and you can pipe that ashore. There's a Danish energy island that's being built, $34 billion island, 30 acre island. It's going to be a hub for 200 wind turbines, three gigawatts, and they're going to have huge batteries out there and electrolyzers out there. So I, I could go on and on, but there are just tremendous linkages here um, if we've got that much of a, of a resource at that low of a cost that we can not only produce electricity 
for our grid and for batteries uh, and other storage devices, but we could also convert this excess wind uh, power or this tremendous resource, this tremendous wind resource uh, into hydrogen fuel for, for many purposes as, we, as we've talked about. So it sounds like these are most all commercial projects, um, but what can, you know, your Joe Schmo at home do? <laughs> um, Jane Doe, what can we do at home to um, accelerate this movement toward offshore wind? Can we call our utilities? What are sort of the leverage points that we might be able to pull um, as everyday citizens? I think, I think yeah, it's a great question. I think recognizing the value is, is the first thing. Recognizing the potential is probably the second thing. Mm. Realizing how big this potential is and how this really fits with all of our, you know, our, our movement towards decarbonization. So, uh, you know, the, I don't think people should be out there lobbying for wind farms uh, necessarily but recognizing their tremendous value and recognizing that the developers of wind farms are doing everything they can to mitigate uh, any, any of the, the negative effects, which are primarily aesthetics, which primarily means moving them off offshore. So I think, um, you know, you mentioned Cape Wind, that was a big fight, you know, Teddy Kennedy became one of his, uh, his major battles. And there was, there was, there's visual impacts. I think vineyard wind is pushed farther out to sea uh, and will have much less impact. So, but in any event, we need to, if we happen to see a, a, a wind tower or a turbine in the horizon, uh, it's, it's white, uh, it's intended to blend in. I think we need to realize that there, in all cases, there will be trade-offs. If we want to use electricity throughout our society, and we do, and throughout our lives, we need to get it from somewhere. This seems about as benign as you can get uh, and as, as, as beneficial as you can get sort of at, the, at that great utility scale. So. I think just being aware of, of the value, being aware of the potential, and supporting you know our state as it increases its or your states as they increase their renewable portfolio standards. Okay. The more the, the utilities are required to buy green, the more that we are supporting community choice aggregation projects and other projects, the more demand there will be for for wind, and uh, the market here will grow dramatically. Yeah, I think that that's a really important take home point for everybody watching is how can we reconceive our, our definition of beauty? <laughs> you know, the health and environmental impacts of wind versus say coal are just so dramatically different. Um, how can we really embrace the beauty of these turbines that we see? I think they're absolutely stunning. I've also mentioned the idea of painting them in certain places hasn't seemed to catch on, but um. <laughs> Yeah, the renewable energy portfolio standards, learn about that with your state, um, National Re Renewable Energy Lab, which we sourced a lot of these pictures from, another incredible resource on the front lines. And as you mentioned, Dad, there are lots of jobs and career opportunities. So if you're young and you're looking for your path, you know, this could be a really fruitful one. So I think we're coming up on our time, Dad. We got a minute to go. So yeah, let's whip out the banjo. Do you have any take-home points for our listeners today? I don't. I think, it, covered? <laughs> I think it's been a really good session. Um, there's the, the one thing I'll mention is there's, um, you know, there are downsides of every technology, and there's going to be a lot of solid waste <clears throat> coming, out of these, um, coming out of this wind industry. It turns out that the blades only last for, you know, 20 years or so. So you, know, you can imagine that we're creating a, a huge amount of waste. So there's been a lot of creativity. Uh, going into that, 
and uh, the repurposing and there's been bridges made out of uh, old wind turbine bridges, uh, old turbine blades, you know, foot bridges. There's been uh, bike shelters in Denmark that are really cool. Uh, there's some garden and street furniture. Uh, this has been considered as a durable roofing material for affordable housing. Um, there's a mashup with gravitational storage uh, that we can talk about another time. There, there are efforts at NREL, we've talked about National Renewable Energy Lab, to, um, to use uh, different materials that can be, can be recyclable. So lightweight thermoplastic resins that are on the market. So uh, we're, we're going to keep an eye on this. There, there's ways of reformulating the blades, but um, that is one objection that has come up. And again, that I think is worthy of uh, keeping an eye on. So anyway, thanks, Sierra, for uh, being a great host. Yeah, and thanks all of you for joining with us today. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. Thanks so much.